I love the Gospel of John. I love it for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I love it is the way in which the characters are depicted. You know, it's only in the Gospel of John that we get introduced to Nicodemus, and it's only in John's Gospel that we get introduced to the woman at the well from Samaria. See, the Gospel of John is very different than the other three. Uh, they, they seem to follow the same storyline pretty consistently. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story, and it's doesn't have much of a subplot. It's kind of a continual drama, kind of builds from the beginning. It reaches some kind of climactic point and then kind of races straight towards the cross. Um, I would compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke to something uh, like a continuing drama. Say if you're watching television, it's, it's like, oh, let me think of a good example these days, uh, Downton Abbey. Um, so... You don't want to just kind of plop down and watch a singular episode of Downton Abbey. There's too much of the characters that are kind of tied together. So like if you... <laughs> thanks. I know I'd minister to somebody. So if you're going to the movies and the movie starts at 7, you, know, you don't show up at 8 and think, hmm, you know, I'll just kind of slide in and, and catch the end. It's not church. <laughs> well... A little pastor joke there. So, um, I can see you all now, too. So, um, yeah, so the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do it that way. In fact, if we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would have suspected that Jesus' public ministry only lasted for about a year or a year and a half. Um, because the only way we know that Jesus' ministry was longer is because in John's Gospel, there's these multiple references to Passover. Uh, there are three different Passovers, and since Passover only comes once a year, we know how long his public ministry would have lasted. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's only reference to a single Passover. Again, it's, it's kind of like a continuing drama. John's Gospel, on the other hand, is more like a sitcom. It has individual episodes that have a definite beginning and an end. And you have the main characters that appear in most all the episodes, but then you also have these kind of uh, second or third level characters who only appear every now and then. So one of my uh, favorite sitcoms was Seinfeld. So I loved it. Um, Perhaps I shouldn't have. I'm not sure. You know, they said it was a show about nothing. I heard it condemned as the endorsement of nihilism. Uh, But I I think it's, it's more than that. And so you have your main characters, uh, Jerry and, and George and Elaine and, and, and Kramer, and you see them in every episode. But then you have these kind of second and third uh, level characters who just kind of appear kind of now and then. Uh, Jerry's nemesis, Newman, uh, the, the uh, mailman, or uh, George's parents or, or Jerry's parents or... Um, God forbid, uh, one of Jerry's girlfriends. He never seems to have a girlfriend longer than a single episode. He always seems to find something wrong with her. Or Elaine. Elaine might have uh, a boyfriend or two. Uh, she had that one guy who kind of stuck around for a while. forgot his name. Buddy? Fuddy. Fuddy. Right. So in any case, um, you know, some, some of these characters have made their way into our pop culture, which is why we ask you what your favorite uh, dish at Moe's was. Uh, there's several reasons to like Moe's. One is that they're so friendly, right? You walk in and they say, 
Yeah, welcome to Moe's. Yeah, we should do that. Oh, welcome to church! <laughs> uh, but the other is that the, the menu items have all, the, the names of the menu items have all been taken from pop culture. My favorite thing to eat at Moe's is a uh, close talker. It's a taco salad. Uh, the close talker was one of Elaine's boyfriends, and he talks so softly you could never hear what he was saying. And so you had to stand really close to him to hear him, you know, one of those close talkers. Um, what, there's a burrito there car, uh, called the Art Vandalay, which was a fictional character that George made up, uh, persona, that made him look better than what he was, because he always wanted to be an architect, and so sometimes he would tell people, I'm an architect, and my name is Art Vandalay except he wasn't really an architect. So we have a fictional character telling a fictional story about something. It's like a fiction inside a fiction. It's like Inception. Yeah. So, so John's Gospel is a bit like this. Um, you have Jesus and you have his, his closest uh, friends that, that appear in pretty much every single episode of the story. But then you have these other characters, uh, like Nicodemus, for example. So Nicodemus, the, the main episode Nicodemus appears in is in John chapter 3. Uh, he does appear two other times, uh, briefly. We'll mention those as well. And then the woman at the well, the woman from Samaria, who interestingly enough, we, we don't know her name. She only appears in the next episode, uh, uh, chapter 4. And so what's interesting is that as you read the Gospel of John, you kind of get introduced to these characters one right after another. And... It's amazing to me how different they are, what my expectations of each of these characters were as the story starts, and then how that expectation shifts as the story continues. Because between the two of them, Nicodemus is definitely the one that you would expect to get the answers right. Right? He's a man. He's Jewish. He's a rabbi. Um, we expect him to know what's right. Uh, she's a woman. We don't even know her name. She's from Samaria. It's kind of like the bad part of town. And uh, we have questions about, you know, how many times she's been married. It's all sorts of things that kind of call her into question. But what's interesting is as the stories end, she becomes the most successful evangelist of the Gospel of John. She tells her whole village, they all believe. In fact, they say, we believe because of your testimony. He, on the other hand, seems to just kind of fade away into the darkness. So let's, let's take uh, in turn and look at these kind of one, one, one by one. So Nicodemus, again, comes to Jesus at night. Um, I guess he's wanting to be inconspicuous. Not sure if he's quite ready to publicly be identified with this rabbi. But he comes in, and uh, he uh, was very respectful. His teacher, we know that you must come from God. How else could you do these mighty things? I mean, at that time, all he had done was uh, turn the water to wine, but I guess it was impressive. And, you know, how, no, one, no one can do these things unless they come from God. And so Jesus talks about the kingdom and says, well, to be a part of the kingdom, you must be born from above. Which, to give Nicodemus his, his fair due, that, that is a somewhat unusual thing to say. You must be born from above. So Nicodemus, kind of as a good student, kind of challenges his rabbi. What in the world do you mean by that? Like, what am I supposed to do? 
full grown. Can't go back into my mom and come out again. And so this is where we get the phrase born again. I imagine that you've heard it before. It's a really popular metaphor to talk about Christianity. And it's only found in this story. This is the only place in Scripture where it uses the phrase born again. Uh, You think it might have been found in every chapter of the Bible as often as we use it. But as it turns out, it's something that's unique to this story. And, And ironically enough... It's unique to Nicodemus's misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching. <laughs> so Jesus says, you must be born from above. And he says, I can't be born again. And Jesus says, listen to me very carefully. <laughs> you know, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. Where the spirit blows, who knows? And so Nicodemus isn't quite getting it. Or at least it doesn't seem like he is. Um, Time magazine, back in the 80s, had mentioned that um, Jimmy Carter was a new kind of Christian, a born-again Christian. I think that's interesting on a number of levels. (laughs) Number one, Jimmy Carter was not the first born-again Christian. Um, And number two, that's not phraseology that's unique to Jimmy. Um, But I guess Time Magazine hadn't heard of Nicodemus, I'm not sure. But with Nicodemus, Jesus... um, uh, tries to kind of introduce himself to Nicodemus, but he doesn't do it in ways that are particularly simple or easy to understand. And and the same thing happens with the Samaritan woman. That's an important part of the story, I think. Because I think we quickly, uh, we hear a sermon, or we have ideas about what Christianity or religion is supposed to be, or we read something in Scripture, and if it comes to us simple and easy, we're like, yeah, that's it, I got it. More often than not, I think that's probably not the case. I think we see something that we think is kind of like us or something that we like. Maybe it's not like us, but we do like it. And we try and quickly identify with it and we kind of attach ourselves to it. And I think if we are in the habit of easily identifying who God is, maybe we're not really doing the best job of identifying who God is. Because it seems like all the characters in Scripture kind of struggle with it. And I suspect that our experience would be much the same. That we too would struggle with it. That we too would have to search and pray and ask and seek and knock and wait and tarry. And come again and again and say, what do you mean? And explain that and I don't quite get it. Because that's what I think it is to get to know anyone. Anyone that's different from me which would be everyone to a certain degree, and certainly God more than any. The Samaritan woman, this is a really interesting story. So Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he's on his way home to Galilee. And uh, there was a little bit of a quicker route he could have taken. Um, or excuse me, there was a little longer route he could have taken that was normal to take uh, for most Jewish rabbis who lived in Galilee and had visited Jerusalem. It was a roundabout way, but they, um, it kept you from going through, again, kind of the bad part of town. So I live on the north side of Lakeland. And let's say I wanted to get to like the south side of Lakeland, say Lakeside Village. Uh, there's a roundabout way to do it. I can come down to the interstate, go down the interstate, get on the parkway, come around the parkway, and there I'm at Lakeside. And it's uh, nice roads, it's quick, it's easy, and I, I don't have to go through Memorial or MLK. The, the, the bad part of town. 
Um, it's funny. All those years ago and all these years later, we still kind of treat neighborhoods the same way. And we treat people who live in certain neighborhoods the same way. As Carol said, uh, tomorrow we celebrate um, the birth of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, this past Friday was his actual birthday. He would have been 87 had he not been assassinated. And there's a lot that he did do for us, um, all of us, in talking about a beloved community and how we should live. Um, a community that says we shouldn't have separate bathrooms and separate schools and separate buses and separate neighborhoods. Um, we have a long way to go with that, of course, still. Uh, we've improved in some ways. There's, there's another half of his message that often doesn't get talked about. He talked about a beloved community, but he also talked about almost as much a beloved economy. That is, you have to have a loving and just economy to actually sustain a beloved community. And that never really came about, and it continues to kind of fall apart in a lot of ways, which is why we end up living the, in the culture that we're currently living in. The Samaritans were not unlike that similar community. They were kind of ostracized by the Jews. They were seen as kind of half-bloods, not, not full-blooded Jews. They, they worshipped the same God, but not the same way. They read some of the same text, but not all of the same text. And so the Jews did not kind of think very highly of them. And so good, respectable rabbis, even though it would have taken longer to get there, would have gone around the community. Jesus, on the other hand, cuts straight through. But it doesn't seem like he's just in a hurry. It's not like he's going from Jerusalem up to Galilee and he says, well, I don't have time to take the three days to go all the way around, so I'm just going to cut straight through to get there. Uh, Because on his way, he stops and has this conversation with the woman, and then it says he stayed there two more days, which means the time he got in Galilee was the same time he would have gotten there had he gone around. Interesting part of the story, I think. He wasn't just in a hurry. So he comes to the well, the well of Jacob, which was you know, the collective or one of the collective patriarchs of both groups. And he meets this woman and he says to her, hey, can I have a drink? And she looks at him and is like, well, not according to your rules. <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to drink or share things with a Samaritan. And uh, he said, well, actually, if you knew who was asking you for a drink... You'd ask me for a drink. Back to that kind of confusing conversation again, right? I mean, what was she supposed to say? What would you have said? Somebody asks you for a drink, you know they're not supposed to. And then they say, well, well, you'd ask me for a drink. Well, why would I ask you for a drink? You just asked me for a drink. Her response to him was, sir, you don't even have a bucket. (laughs) Right? They're standing at the well. She's got the bucket. He doesn't. Pretty practical, but I, I like her. So then he says, well, um, the, the water that I would give you is not like this water. It's like living water from whence you'll never thirst again. And so she says, show me. Give me some of that water. So I don't know exactly how to read that. You know, when I was younger, I used to read that like all of a sudden she'd already become a Christian and she was just waiting to walk down the aisle. Like she completely understood what was going on. I tend to think now that she's, she's not buying it, right? She's not just buying his words. Like, you got some kind of magic water. Let's see it. So he says, go get your husband. 
And she says, I don't have a husband. And he goes, that's right to say you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the person you're living, the man you're living with now is not your husband. She's like, oh. You're, you're a prophet. Which a little, little bit of the backstory here. Uh, the Samaritans didn't, didn't believe in prophets the same way the Jews did. The Jews had lots and lots of prophets. You know, they had Samuel, and they had Nathan, and they had Elijah and Elisha, and then they had Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. I mean, there's a lot of prophets, right? <laughs> prophets and prophets and prophets. But the, the Samaritans, not unlike the Sadducees, which is another kind of subgroup of Jews, they, they, they were the more conservative bunch. You know, they only read the King James. No, just kidding. They only read... They, they only read uh, the Torah. They only read the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, the, the kicker there is, there's just one big prophet in that story, and his name's Moses. And in Deuteronomy 18, it says, God will send another prophet like Moses. So if your scripture is only the Torah, your expectation of a prophet is singular. Like you're only expecting one other prophet other than Moses. So for this lady to say, hey, you're a prophet, is, is quite a confession statement in, in her belief system. Like she's acknowledging that Jesus is not just a weary traveler or some kind of trickster or prankster who's going to play some trick with magic water. She's like, you're, you're a prophet. And he goes on to say, um, look, you all worship here, here in Samaria at the well. And the Jews worship down in Jerusalem. But the day is coming when all who worship the one true God will worship in spirit and truth. And then she says, well, I know the Jews expect a Messiah. So at this point, she is reaching out kind of beyond her, her faith system. Starting to embrace something that's on the fringe, on the border of what anybody from her community might believe. It's like what those others kind of believed. Be like, um, no, I don't want to use that analogy. Okay, maybe I will. Uh, yeah, it, w- it would be like, um, like, a, like a Baptist hearing about this kind of Pentecostal service. And like, well, I know those Pentecostals believe in this stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Or it might have been even more. More than we're perhaps prepared to hear. That our God is a big God. And a God is an inviting God. God is trying, to quote Richard Rohr from last week, to make God known, to, to give us an epiphany, to show us who God really is. The ultimate representation of who God really is, is Jesus. Jesus is the clearest and most defined picture of who we have of God. And what's great about this type of epiphany is that it doesn't just show us who God is, but it provides light by which we can see who we truly are. John says that Jesus was the light and the light came into the darkness and the darkness could not withstand it. But that light, again, allows us to see the light, but then it also allows us to see ourselves. It allowed Nicodemus to see some. allows the Samaritan woman to see in truly remarkable ways. 
She says, I know the Jews expect a Messiah. And Jesus answers, I am. We often translate that, I am he, because that's a better English sentence. But, on occasion, in John's Gospel, Jesus will just use the phrase, I am, without predicate. It's interesting, because it's the same language that we get in Exodus, coming from the burning bush. Right? When Yahweh says, when Moses says, who, who am I supposed to say sent me? And the voice is like, I am that I am. So Jesus uses that language. When she says, I know the Jews expect a Messiah, he just says, ta-da, I am. And she goes into her village, and she tells them what she's heard, and it says her whole village comes and believes in Jesus because of her testimony. And then they stay, because again, Jesus stays for two days. And they eat together and whatever else. They're probably praying together and talking. And, and then they say, well, we first believed because of your testimony. But now we have come and we have seen and we believe for ourselves. What about old Nicodemus? Who came to faith because of Nicodemus? Did Nicodemus come to faith? That's a a real ambiguous uh, answer, I think. I was going to say an ambiguous question. I guess the question's kind of clear, but but how are we going to answer that? I mean, at the end of uh, of John 3, I mean, we get the the passage that we can hold up at baseball games. Um, So that's this part of the story, right? Nicodemus, and then Jesus finally says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the passage that... People hold up at, uh, at games and stuff. That came from the Nicodemus story. But we're never told what Nicodemus actually believes. So in chapter 7, there's this dispute in, uh, amongst the uh, Sanhedrin. And uh, they mention, they're, they're kind of uh, interrogating this guy and, because he's associated with Jesus. And Nicodemus says, well... Should we really be casting judgment on someone before we've heard them? And they all turn on him. And they go, what? Are you a Galilean? You following this guy too? <laughs> Nicodemus didn't say anything else. And then we don't see Nicodemus again until after the crucifixion. And it says, Joseph of Arimathea who was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews, came and asked for the body of Jesus and kind of provided for his his funeral, for his burial. And it says that Nicodemus was with him and helped split the cost. So this is what we know about Nicodemus. He was curious enough to show up in the dark and to see what Jesus was about. At least once in his life, He spoke up publicly in a way that looks like he was not anti-Jesus. And then at the end of Jesus' life, he helped pay for his burial. Hmm. If we were to count Nicodemus in the numbers of those who believe, he certainly wasn't the strongest member of the group. 
Not that we're looking to com- compare ourselves one to another. But my hope is that I can live my life in such a way that at the end of my life, if someone says, did Robbie Waddell identify with Jesus, that there's no ambiguity, that they can answer unequivocally, yeah. Because with a Samaritan woman, if we were to ask the same question of her life, there is no ambiguity. It's clear what she believes, that, that she came to faith, Confusing road that it is. She has this epiphany who Jesus is. He helps her have an epiphany of who she is. And then she goes and shares and her whole village believes. There's no one else who has quite that testimony. I'd like to be quick to add one other side point. I've heard a lot said about this woman from Samaria. And most of it has been quite derogatory. They, they talk about her as though um, she was a prostitute or as though um, she was, um, I don't know, a, a lady of loose morals. And, and, they, and they say all sorts of things. She's at the well in the middle of the day. Well, who would be at the well in the middle of the day? I guess somebody wanted to get something to drink. And they paint these kind of elaborate pictures around her as though she was like super sketch. Um, But a lot of that, I think, we might be reading into the story. Now, we do know that she'd been married a lot. um, But we don't know why that was the case. I mean, in that culture, men could divorce their wives, but wives could not divorce their husbands. That's interesting. And amongst the reasons at least Jewish men could divorce their wives is that if they burnt breakfast, it's actually written down in the Jewish law. Crazy. So we don't know what happened to her former husbands. We don't know if they died. We don't, had they been killed in a war? Had they died of disease? Had they just divorced her because she burned breakfast? I mean, we don't know why she ended up that way, but we do know this, that women in that time, in that area anyway, other women in the world had experienced a bit more liberties, but not there. Uh, There wasn't an opportunity for her just to live as an adult single woman. right? She had to live with like a, a father, a brother, a husband, an uncle, There weren't options for women to be independent. So what happens if her husbands are died, have died, and who knows about a father or a brother or an uncle? So before we're too quick to kind of overread, I think, into her story and kind of make her into some kind of very kind of ill-reputed person, just, just know this. If she was so sketchy, isn't it interesting that everybody in her village believed her testimony so readily that they all came to faith because of what she said? I pray that God can give us all an epiphany. I pray that during this season of epiphany, during this sermon series of aha moments, that we would all experience um, a manifestation of who God really is. And I also pray this. I pray that that epiphany of who God is might shine a light onto who we are 
so that we might see ourselves as God sees us. 